Well, our text this morning comes uh, from Ephesians chapter 5, and we are moving along at a good clip. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. Listen to what the word of the Lord says to us this morning. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully how you walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best of the time, because the days are evil. May God add his blessing to our reading of his holy word. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us, and that you would show us yourself in your word, and that you would show us ourselves in your word. We pray that your living and active word would come and do what only it can do. We pray that it would correct and rebuke and exhort and train us in righteousness. It's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. Well, we're going to work backwards uh, through the text of Scripture this morning, and we're going to begin at the end with this strange little saying that's kind of, in most of your Bibles, is set off in brackets or Parentheses, and the strange little saying says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Now that little saying is a bit of a mystery, and we are actually not at all sure where it comes from. It has some very loose parallels with passages in the Old Testament, like uh, Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 1, and a few other passages. Uh, verses in Isaiah, and then one or two in, I think, Micah in the Old Testament. So some have concluded that Paul is somehow making some sort of a, a loose citation here. Uh, it, it also resembles, I, I spoke in a few weeks ago about the baptismal liturgies that we have kind of available uh, to us uh, in, in the historic documents, and it has some resemblance to the baptismal services that we have preserved from the, from the second century. Um, but there's also this weird part where it says, right before it has this little phrase, it says, he says, he says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. And, and when you have something that starts with he says, the he is usually God, and, uh, and that, that usually indicates a scripture quotation somewhere. And, and yet we can't find that scripture quotation anywhere. 
even in the books that didn't make it into the Bible. So he's not even quoting some, some book that, uh, that was used or perhaps present in that day, but was not considered scripture. It may be that, that Paul was actually acting in the role of a prophet of the Old Testament type and is writing down something that God has spoken to him directly. We, we just don't know. But the little poem, let's call it a poem, or, or better yet, uh, the hymn, the little hymn, that's even better, contrasts two things that the Apostle Paul has repeatedly emphasized. On the one hand, you have sleep, and you have darkness, and you have death, mentioned either explicitly or by implication. And then on the other hand, you have awakening, and you have light, and you have resurrection. There are, in other words, two states of being that are described by this little hymn. There is death and life. Another way to talk about it is sleep and wakefulness. And a third way to talk about it is darkness and light. They, they both, they all three refer to the same two states of being. That which is a result of being disconnected from God and that which is a result of coming close to God through Jesus Christ. So let's just look very quickly this morning in the time that we have left and ask ourselves the questions, first of all, what is it that marks a darkened life? Now, this, this whole chapter 4 and chapter 5 have really been hitting heavy on these themes. Paul has been talking about how people who don't know Jesus live. And he's saying, don't do that anymore. You were called out of that. Don't go back and lie down in the slop. So what is it that marks a darkened life? Well, the first thing is being deceived by empty words. Being deceived by empty words. And behind that is a fact. And the fact is that Satan controls this world. He's running the place. Satan controls its wisdom. He controls its logic, which is not logical at all. He controls its power structures. He controls the ideas that get promoted in the halls of power, in the universities. He controls the ideas that govern much of the mental health industry. He controls the ideas that got turned into hit songs and blockbuster movies and best-selling novels. And when those ideas get put into words, those are empty words. Empty doesn't mean words without meaning. Empty means words without truth. God designed things so that words are full of a certain kind of power. And in his kingdom, words are one of the major ways that God has ordained to bring about the good. It says in Proverbs 25, 11, like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word that is fitly spoken. In other words, it's not just beautiful, it's precious. And it's precious because it's powerful. How many of you have withered inside because of words spoken to you? And the energy and the venom and the hate 
that was behind those words. And how many of you have blossomed, even just momentarily, under the influence of a word of goodness and blessing and joy and peace? You know, when I was a, when I was a little kid, um, my dad could beat me up one side and down the other, and sometimes did. I probably deserved it. And uh, it never, never made a dent in me. But my grandfather was precious to me. And he, he loved me in a way that nobody else in this world loved me. And all he had to do was look at me and say, son, I'm disappointed in you. And I was undone. He didn't have to use the belt. And when he said, son, I'm proud of you. Or we're glad to have you here. Or we enjoy you. I just blossomed. Words are like that. Words are full of power for good. They are full of power for evil. Empty words are vain words. They're words who, who destroy those who drink them in and who incorporate them into their lives. And when those ideas are accepted that are conveyed by those words, when those ideas are accepted and incorporated into a person, they bring forth death a kind of death that can spread from person to person to person. Which leads to the second characteristic of the darkened life, and that is disobedience to God as a habitual way of being. The phrase sons of disobedience is a Hebraism that speaks about the character of a human being who lives a certain way of life. Now, your character is basically the actions that grow, the unforced actions that grow out of, out of inside of you, whatever your insides are. And, and we come to know your character because we see those actions over and over and over again, whether they would be good or evil. And this person is a son of disobedience. In other words, their character is one of repetitive disobedience. It's built into them like their eye color or, or the, the texture of their hair, or their height. That's just part of their character. They're sons of disobedience. And you know, one of the things that happens when Christians begin to backslide is that they forget that God is a great high king who demands obedience. And, and that's first and foremost who he is. I read a sermon one time on Acts chapter 10 and verse 11, and it was about two words that never belong together ever. And those two words are no and Lord. You find them in Acts 10, 11. No, Lord. Of course, it's Peter. Peter's always doing that kind of thing. And, and, and the reason that those words never belong together is if you tell him no when he tells you what to do, then you ought not call him Lord. Because he's not your Lord. The word Lord is an empty, vain word for you. Because if you tell him no, he's not your Lord. Your Lord is one whom you obey. And if you call him your Lord, then you may never tell him no. If he says, do this, you say, yes, sir. 
If he says, think this way, you say, yes, sir. If he says, believe these things are true on my word, you say, yes, Lord. He's not your buddy. He is your God. He is the great high king. He is the emperor of the universe. And our first duty is to obey him. And to do what he says. And it's a serious matter that we kind of get a little fuzzy on sometimes. Because we're so used to thinking of him in ways that diminish him, frankly. And they diminish his holiness. You see, all of our goodness and all of our well-being are only found in obeying him. And his ways are not burdensome. His ways are actually very pleasant when you just submit to them and walk in the way he tells you, they are good ways. They're full of life and health. You go back to the Psalms and you, you watch the psalmist as he just exults in the Lord about his law. Well, what is his law? Well, his law is basically a reflection of his character, at least the moral law is. And God has said, if you will live this way, it will go well with you. And if you don't, it won't. And people who take that seriously and, and live and walk in obedience, they find life is sweet. It's good. Life is nice. They bring good and health, says the scripture, to the whole person. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Thirdly, the, the test of the, the darkened life is, is marked by unfruitful works, unfruitful works. Now, this refers not only to evil deeds and evil words, but it also refers to the good things that lost people try to do. And that when they do this, it never has its desired effects. They, they may fix one thing and they ruin four others in the process of fixing the thing that's wrong. And uh, just as an old and therefore hopefully uncontroversial example, uh, in, the, in the late 19th century on into the 20th century, there, there was a major problem with drunkenness. And, uh, and, and, and so you had a rising out of that. There were men who would get, get paid. Everybody got paid in cash back then. Some of you will remember those days when you got a cash envelope at the mill or wherever, and that was your pay but they would get paid and they would immediately go to the bar and they would drink their whole paycheck away and they'd come home and their kids were hungry. And sometimes they'd beat their wives and their children and they didn't have any money left for clothing or food or anything else. And it was a terrible, terrible situation. And so people got together and they said, well, we're gonna fix this. And they had a big social movement and it took, oh, about 40 years to get it done. But, uh, but it, in the end, there was a decades-long push to make alcohol totally illegal, culminating in the passage of the 18th Amendment to the Constitution. Now think about that for a minute. They amended the United States Constitution in order to prohibit the sale and consumption of alcohol. But people still wanted to drink. And alcoholics were still alcoholics. And so there's a demand, and the legitimate supply had dried up. So what happens? Well, organized crime, which had been more or less a local problem, grew into an international problem. 
in order to supply alcohol illegally. And mobsters became very rich and very powerful because there was just so much money to be made. And 14 years later, in 1933, prohibition was repealed. Alcohol was legal again in most places, but the mob still flourished, and then they found other things to do when that market dried up. So in 1918, we had one problem, drunkenness. In 1933, we now have two problems, drunkenness and the mob. And it just ballooned from there. The, all the stuff that's going on in Mexico right now with the cartels shooting each other. They had, it's, it freaks me out to hear about neighborhoods in Tijuana where I have been and where I've done mission work and I know people. And those neighborhoods are being shut down and the cartels are telling people, do not step outside of your house after 7 p.m. or you are a legitimate target. And all the Americans are trying to figure out how to get out of there because the cartels are having a war for control of the drug trade. That is a direct, that is a direct result of the kinds of moves that were made in prohibition. And the, and the rise of the mafia. And everybody looked at that and said, that's a great model for all kinds of other illegal things that people want to do. And so we'll just use crime and violence to get our way. You see, that's the world's pattern. Sin produces ill effects, and God says, repent and leave your sin. And rebellious man says, no, we absolutely have to keep the sin. There's no way you can tell people to stop sinning. We can't craft a social policy around telling people to stop sinning. So we'll just do things to try to manage or mitigate the effects of the sin. And those measures just produce more problems. That's what's happening right now with monkeypox. You know, you can't tell people not to behave in a way that transmits that. Well, the way they're behaving that transmits it is incredibly perverse. Oh, you can't tell them that. We're just going to have to come up with a way to treat it and have a vaccine, and, and then maybe it'll be all right. Or the AIDS crisis, same thing. You can't tell people, don't do that. That hurts you, and it hurts everybody else. No, no, we want to sin. And so we're going to do what we want to do. And then the world comes along and says, well, the only thing we can do is try and manage that. And their, their measures just produce more problems. Number four, the darkened life is marked by the wrath of God by the wrath of God. On account of his rebellion, man is liable to the wrath of God. And that's his judicial anger. This is the judicial anger of a perfectly just judge. Psalm chapter 7 and verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who is angry with the wicked every day. And we are not being fair with people. We're not doing right by them unless we warn them about the present and the coming wrath of God, which they must face because of their sins unless they come to Jesus and transfer that wrath to Jesus in their lives. See, the gospel is often presented as, as, you know, God wants to give you a better life. He wants to give you a life of peace, and of joy, and of purpose, and if you're a Joel Osteen fan, also of health and plenty of money. And I just want to tell you, Jesus did not die on a cross and rise from the grave simply so that you could have peace or enjoy a sense of purpose in your life. 
Jesus came and died and rose in order to cancel the penalty for your sin, to bear in his person the wrath of God which is due to you, and to make it possible for you to live a new kind of life. Now, in that new kind of life, will you enjoy peace and joy and purpose? Absolutely. Certainly. But those are the side effects. Those are the fruits And those only arise in your life when that central issue has been dealt with, namely the wrath of God that is coming for each and every sinner who does not repent and who does not turn to Christ for salvation. It is certain. It is sure. We need to warn people about it if we care about them at all. I can remember in... uh, it was either, I think it was still in Iowa. Uh, it was on the way between my wife, my in-law's house and, and Sturgis. There was a, a billboard that was up for years, and it was just a quote from the, the book of Amos. And it said, it was just a, a white billboard with black text, prepare to meet thy God. Prepare to meet thy God. Why would you need to prepare to meet your God? Because the wrath of God is on the head of everyone who has not been brought close in Christ Jesus. And we need to be telling the people in our lives who we love, prepare to meet thy God. Because the meeting's coming. You aren't going to get away. The minute you draw your last breath, he is utterly unavoidable. You may be hiding from him in the body. But once you've shuffled off this body, you'll stand face to face with him. Are you ready? Are the people whom you love ready? Well, that's the darkened life. What does the life of light look like? Well, says Paul, it's full of good or goodness. In goodness, we find only what benefits people. That's what goodness is, that which benefits. Goodness brings about the well-being of the world, and it does so without any of the nasty side effects that are found with the unfruitful works of darkness. You don't solve one problem in God's goodness and make six more when you bring about the good as God has talked about it. You just solve the problem, and in so doing, you bring about the health Uh, of the whole, whether that is an individual life or a family or an organization or a nation. You just bring about the well-being of the whole thing. Now, here's a thought for you to dwell upon. God is good. Now, that seems very basic, but if you start thinking about it, it's very deep. God is good. God is engaged in a millennia-long project to restore the world so that the good wins and evil dies. And once you are clothed in Christ by grace through faith, God has nothing but good for you. There's nothing that he will hold against you. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, says Paul in Romans 8. 
And you can rely on God to do good by you and for you and in you and through you. And because of that, you can therefore always be poised in the world to do good to others without being concerned about how much doing the good is costing you personally because God will give you what you need. He has pledged in his word to do so. So you can do the good because you will always have in Jesus the resources you need to live and do the good. And some of us are learning about that because it's a kind of a step of faith sometimes. We're called to do something and, and we say, okay, Lord, I'm going to do it. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, I don't know if I can bear that cost, Lord. I don't know if I've got the energy. I don't know if I've got the time. I don't know if I've got the patience. I don't know if I've got the wisdom. And God says, hush, child, I've got all that. You just walk. You just do what I've told you to do. And we do. And we're a little scared we're going to fall flat on our face. And then Jesus comes alongside, and everything works out all right. And we go, oh, God, you're good. And he says, yeah, I know. I told you. I'm good. I know that. Secondly, those who walk in the light live lives that are marked by the right or by righteousness. The word in Greek is dikaiosune. It is the broadest, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful word. It's got many different connotations, but in its broadest sense, it refers to, and here's a quote from one of my Greek dictionaries, this quote, the state of him who is such as he ought to be. The state of him who is such as he ought to be to be, is that person who is what he ought to be, or what she ought to be, is dikaiosune, is righteous, is right. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a weird example of that, but it's, I think it's a good example. Uh, to be righteous, in other words, is just to be put back to factory specs. And, and those of you that, that work with machines and things like that are you know what it is when things get out of spec, right? Nothing works right. To be good, to be righteous, is to be put back into factory specs and to be operating as intended by the one who designed you and built you. In other words, sin in your life is, is being out of factory specs. It's, it's being not what you were designed to be. You know... Um, the early Toyota Tundras up to about 2008, 2009 uh, with the V8 engine uh, were remarkable vehicles. The engine in particular was remarkable. It was a 4.7 liter V8, I believe. And uh, there are several of them out there that have, get this now, a million miles on the original engine. A million miles without a rebuild, not burning oil, nothing. One of them belonged to a guy named Victor Shepard. Now, the reason I, I think about this is because the, one of the places the Tundra is manufactured is over in Princeton, Indiana, which is just a little bit north of Evansville, where we used to live. And we actually know people that work in the Toyota factory there. And that, those were good jobs when, when Toyota came to town and opened that factory in Princeton. They built that Tundra there. And one of them belonged to this guy named Victor Shepard. And, and Victor used his, his truck for what's called hole shots, in the oil field services industry. That means that, that he basically hauled small to medium-sized equipment 
either in the bed of his pickup or on a trailer between Louisiana, North Dakota, and the Eagle Ford Shale in Texas because they're always moving equipment around wherever they're dwelling. And so he, he was just like an independent contractor. He bought himself a Toyota Tundra in 2007, and he just started driving it. And he took very good care of it. He serviced it at the Toyota dealer, and he got a million miles out of that truck. And it was on the original engine, the original transmission, even the original paint. And Toyota, when they heard about that, they, they said, hey, we want your truck, and we will give you a brand new Tundra in exchange. And so they took his Tundra, and there are videos about this on the internet if you're interested. They, they exchanged it for a brand new one, and then they took that truck and they tore it down to try and figure out what it is they did so right. And they yanked the engine out, and they sent it back to the factory in Alabama that originally built the motor, and when they tore that engine down, almost everything was still within factory specs after a million miles. One of the engineers said, this engine would score 99 out of 100 on our quality tests. Now that is just astonishing to me. In other words, if they had replaced the one or two small parts that were the only evidence of wear and put that engine back together, it would be indistinguishable from a new engine. And that's after a million miles. That engine is righteous in this sense. It is dikaiosune in the Greek sense of the word. It is functioning exactly as intended. And everything is exactly as it should be inside of it. And everything's working together correctly for the well-being and functioning of the whole. And it's doing it well. And it's doing it for a long, long time. You see, you were designed for righteousness. And sin is like pouring sugar in your gas tank. You ever had anybody do that to you? You ever seen anything? You ever seen a car that somebody poured sugar in the gas tank? Somebody did that to my brother in high school. Totally ruined his car. It just shredded everything. And sin is like pouring sugar in the gas tank. It's like draining the oil and not refilling the crankcase with fresh oil and then driving off. It's like weak antifreeze in North Dakota in the winter. It tears up stuff. And it tears up your life. Righteousness puts everything back in spec so that it works correctly. Thirdly, and finally, life in the light is true, Paul says. Full of truth. Now, what is truth? At its most basic, truth is just the way things actually are. And a lie is what people, or fallen angels, use to try and hide how things actually are. So you, you can have the truth, which is just a description, an accurate description of how things actually are. Or you can have a lie which hides what actually is. That's really all of truth is. Truth is just the way things actually are. You cannot make decisions wisely 
if you don't have all the information, if you don't know how things actually are. And so when somebody lies to you, one of the things they're doing to you is they're taking from you the ability to make a wise decision in your own self-interest. Truth is the way things actually are. And Jesus wants you to live in such a way, in the way of goodness and righteousness, that you won't have to worry about needing to hide things. You won't have to worry about needing to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. People could just look at your life, they could see it as it is, and you wouldn't need to be embarrassed at all. You could just say, look at me, I'm an open book. I belong to Jesus. And my life is my life. And you just, you just go ahead and take a look. And see what's true. You remember the story of Daniel in the Old Testament? And, and, and this is kind of later, around chapter 6 or 7 or so, maybe 5. I can't remember exactly which chapter it ended. But, but, but he had risen because of the excellence of his character. He had risen to the highest heights in the Babylonian kingdom. And because he was wise. And because he was good. And he had risen to a very high height. He had a lot of peers. There were governors and satraps and, and officials of all different kinds of names who had power, who were his peers. And Daniel was so wise and so good at his job that the king promoted him above his peers. And they resented Daniel. And they resented his position. And they sought to bring Daniel down. And so they began to dig in his life. They began to try and find some wrongdoing, no matter how small, that they could blow out of proportion and, and bring it to the king and say, oh, king, get rid of this Daniel. He's not the good guy you think he is. And they couldn't find anything. They could not find one thing that Daniel had done wrong. Nothing large and nothing small that they could use against him. And do you know why they hated him as much as they hated him? Well, fundamentally, it was because his goodness revealed their badness and their corruption. And that's what Paul's talking about in there where he says, you know, expose the works of darkness that are even shameful to talk about. And, and a lot of scholars are like, well, if they're shameful to talk about, how do we expose them? And, and the answer is, just be like Jesus. Just live your life in the light and be uncorruptible and good. And when they set you down next to somebody else, people are going to look at your life and they're going to look at the other person's life and they're going to go, wow, this is good and this is a mess. That's how we're supposed to live. Now, God wants us to be like Daniel. He wants us to live in the light. You and I have all done things that we're ashamed of. Things that are probably still secret. Maybe in the mercy of God, they'll stay secret. I don't know. But resolve today to leave those things in the past and from this day forward to live your life in the light. Just refuse to do anything shameful, anything false, anything deceitful that needs to be hidden. And you say, well, why should we live that way? Well, says Paul, because the days are evil. The days are evil. 
Look carefully at how you walk because the days are evil. Walk wise, not unwise. You know, your smartphone is tracking everything you do. Does that make you nervous? You do not create a tiny $1,000 computer that somebody keeps with them and takes everywhere they go and does everything on. You don't con people into that unless you're saving all of that data and putting it to use. And if the enemies of God decided to come after you in the same way that they came after Daniel, would they find what they needed to hang you in your smartphone data? Again, the past is the past, and you can't do anything about it but repent and trust God. But what about tomorrow? What about the future? What you can do something about is today and tomorrow and the next day and all the days to come because evil days are upon us now. And I think more evil days are to come. And they're gunning for us. And they're going to be gunning for us even worse. And it's going to be the kind of situation where if you stick your head up to say something, it's going to get lopped off. And they're going to come after you. And they're going to come after me too, probably before they come after you. Live in such a way that we don't need to be scared of that. Amen. Amen. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are my rock and my redeemer.